trailblazers in research, innovators in technology, and those who simply have a good story. All make up the fabric that is George Mason University. We're taking on the grand challenges that face our students, graduates, and higher education is our mission and our passion. Hosted by Mason President Gregory Washington, this is the Access to Excellence podcast. For more than 50 years, the U.S. Small Business Administration has celebrated National Small Business Week. This week recognizes the critical contributions of America's entrepreneurs and small business owners. Here at George Mason University, we celebrate those contributions and the ways Mason is a valuable community asset, trusted partner, and a source of economic growth. Just to put it in perspective, through the Mason Enterprise at George Mason University, Mason in 2022 provided, mostly free of charge now, 40,000 hours of one-on-one counseling to 10,000 small businesses. And out of those 10,000, 61% of which were women-owned, 46% were minority-owned, and 15% were owned by veterans. In addition, our school of business is rewriting the way business is taught. Here to talk about all of this are two of our trusted experts. Ajay Vince, who's Dean of Mason's School of Business, and Paula Sorrell, Associate Vice President of Mason for Innovation and Economic Development. In that framework, she oversees the incubators, the mixed space, the tech transfer office, and other entrepreneurial programming. So, great to have both of you here today. Thank you. Welcome to you both. Thanks. We hear a lot about small business in the country, and given that this is National Small Business Week, This is meant to be a celebration. Given that you two are our entree, our connection into the business world, tell me how you all celebrate. What do you do? Well, we don't wait for Small Business Week. We celebrate every single day. So our team of more than 200 people throughout the Commonwealth of Virginia are doing daily counseling, daily trainings. Actually, we put on 1,600 training programs and workshops last year. So that's several a day if you do the math. And also, if you look at the impact, the dollar impact, so at $3.36 billion in impact on the Commonwealth, for every public dollar we receive for the work we do, we put 256 back into the economy. If we were a stock, you'd buy us. Oh, that's a great statistic. Maybe we should talk to our governor and our funding appropriators about that number and see if we can get Mason's per-student funding up a little bit more. That would be fantastic. Here, 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 here. <laughs> All right. Well, I would just add to what Paul is saying and say, first of all, a big congratulations to all the small business owners out there because small business owners and small businesses are definitely the heart of U.S. business. I was looking at some statistics, and it's really quite awe-inspiring because small businesses are making up over 99% of all business in the U.S. So that is an amazing statistic if you think about it. Just last year, there's 33.2 million small business owners out there, out of which 27 million are single persons with no employees. So it's fantastic. So what are we doing here? We are celebrating them at the business school in a variety of ways. Today is particularly special because we have our Patriot Pitch Competition, which we are hoping we would add to the ranks of new small business owners out there. And the business school is just thrilled. I think what we are doing is going to add both to the management ranks and to the small business ranks. So very excited about this. 
So we have this opportunity, this National Business Week. So Ajay, you could speak to this first. If you were to basically sum up, how does all that translate on campus? How are we actually fundamentally engaged in supporting the small businesses in our region? What would be your answer to that? First up, I would say all business is relevant to everyone. So business is at the heart of everything. The tagline we use in the business school is everything is business. So it really everything may be business, but business is important only when it associates with something. That is the importance of interdisciplinary orientation and cross-disciplinary orientation are both important because just the notion of business doesn't mean anything. Business of something means something. So how are we doing this on campus? We are cross-connecting and creating new programs and programming that includes business school going into collaboration with other colleges. Hmm. So the notion of business of healthcare, business of education, business of athletics, business of whatever, it really puts us in a hub and spokes kind of a setup where business should cross-connect with everyone and we should become a service in many ways. So our courses and our programs have to reflect that and that's exactly what we're trying to do. What about you, Paula? So when we work with students, my team has placed about 150 students in tech startups. We think student internships are an excellent way for students who have the entrepreneurial bug, especially for undergrads, to be able to go work with an experienced entrepreneur. They get to see a lot more in a startup. They get to see the 360 view of what it takes to run a business. And we do a little prep with them ahead of time as well. Like, this is what you should expect. This is how the CEO will need your help. Those types of things, you know, sort of a crash course and working in a startup. For master's and graduate students, those are our best target audience in terms of people who are likely to start businesses, people who are likely to take technologies out of the university, and we are growing our support and our wraparound services through programs like the Virginia ICAP program and the NSF I-Corps program, of which we're a hub now. So we're really excited about the additional support we're able to provide and really being a go-to place for anybody who's interested in growing a business. We support startups, and we support them in a significant way, and, and we support large business as well. What is our attraction to startups? Why is that an important connection point for universities? For our department in particular, we are very focused on economic development. So we're about job creation and capital formation and giving and empowering people to be able to make their own success. And those people are more likely to be in the region. And Mason in particular is a great spot for that because most of our students are from the region and they stay in the region after they graduate. The best thing that we can do is anchor a company here. So for the later stage companies, we bring the capital to them so that they don't have to go outside of the market to try to find it. And we do that through things like the Accelerate Investor event, which we will hold this year, November 1st and 2nd on the Arlington campus. And it's interesting to also, if I could add, the demographic of students that are coming into Mason or coming into higher education in general, their expectations are changing. The notion of getting a degree and going out, joining a large company, while it was very much in vogue for the longest time, increasingly the younger generation, the Gen Xers and so on, who are coming into our classrooms today, are wanting to start businesses of their own. So a simple statistic out there says Gen Xers are typically 200 times more likely to start a new business as opposed to getting into their uh, larger company. So equipping them with the business basics 
allows them both. It allows them the option of being an entrepreneur, being a successful entrepreneur, but also having the option to go into a large corporation and immediately be of action over there. Exactly, and I think that's one thing that really motivates our team to do the work that they do is that we know that we can change a life and change a trajectory and change a generation. You know, one of the aspects of what you do, actually both of you, but particularly you, Paula, is to develop programs and occupants for the Fuse Building, Mm -hmm. which is a 345,000-square-foot building Mason is constructing on its Mason Square campus in Arlington. That building, which will open in 2025, will serve as a technological hub in the Roslyn-Boston corridor, and it will connect students, faculty, industry, and government. There is such a big and increasing focus on tech in that region, not only at Mason, but throughout that region as well. How many of the 11,000 businesses that I highlighted earlier, how many of those businesses are tech businesses, and how do you see the building connecting to those businesses in particular? So of the 10,000 businesses that we supported last year, about 1,500 of those are tech businesses, but that's also the fastest growing segment, our tech startups of our entire portfolio. I can't tell you how exciting it is to be living and working in the Roslyn Boston corridor. It feels like you're riding a really big wave and just trying to keep up because of everything that's coming into the region. It's significant. And the Fuse project and the building was started started as a pilot project. So right now, a team of people, including me, are sitting and working in the pilot. We didn't know how it was going to work out. And so far in the first year we were open, we held over 200 entrepreneurial events, classes, workshops, community meetings. And this year we're on track to deliver 400 programs of a similar sort. Ajay, recently you made an extraordinary presentation to our Board of Visitor, in which you actually highlighted something I've been meaning to actually get more FaceTime with you about, but now that we can do this in front of everybody, I want to put you on the spot, right? You highlighted a new way to teach business to students. You said we shouldn't lock students into a strict curriculum in order to get a business degree. You basically highlighted that we should make it more flexible and engaging. Can can you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely, Uh, and thanks for that. I I think uh, higher education in general is about ready for disruption in some ways. Uh, A lot of it has to do with this notion of uh, willingness to pay and the notion of how education is delivered. So we all know the cost of education has gone up, so the expectation from education has also changed. But uh, it's also a notion of how education is delivered. For the longest time, it has been delivered as one product that's an integrated whole. Thou shalt take these 10 courses and then we shall give you a degree kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, But the fact of the matter is increasingly uh, students, uh, employers, uh, small businesses, what have you, are looking for skills that are more directed and focused and deep. The idea comes from a curious way, uh, Dr. Washington. If you think about the old CD-ROM presentation of music Mm -hmm. where we had 12 songs on a CD, you had to buy that CD, you, uh, you had to buy all 12 songs, but you really liked only two of the songs, but you're stuck paying for the entire CD. Oh yeah, that was the big <laughs> challenge for me. And, and, and that is really, if you can equate education to that, because if you look at that, in many ways we are saying you have to take these 10 courses before 
And the question is, are all those 10 courses going to work for you given the price? It causes two kind of curious behaviors from especially our tech-savvy incoming freshmen and incoming students in that if you price it too high, it causes desire to pirate in some ways or, or to consume at a lower quality. That's right. It's very much like the music industry. When you switch from CD-ROM to streaming, you end up consuming a whole lot more music at the right price, and you create your playlist in a way that makes sense to you in real time. Obviously, we can't go all that complete route in education because that would be, again, not fully true to what our purpose is because we have to credential students correctly. So instead, if we take stepwise approach, if you say to become an expert in something, take, say, five courses intensively on a topic, Mm -hmm. say cybersecurity or forensic accounting or what have you, and allow students to construct these detailed or deep knowledge with certificate programs that are deep in areas that industry want them, the way in which economy wants them. And the structure that uh, you were mentioning earlier is uh, the structure that we allow our students, if you're going to open up a degree, say a master's of science in management, the student must have some base understanding of business because it's a business degree. So you have some foundational courses in there. But once you're done with the foundational courses, you allow them to take another certificate in business to have an all business degree if they like, or allow them to take a certificate from any of our other very robust colleges on campus. So, for instance, a student can have this degree by taking a certificate in business and then taking a certificate in healthcare. So you have healthcare finance or forensic journalism or uh, cybersecurity sales. None of these degrees exist as is. But there's certainly a market demand for them. And by doing this flexibly, we'll be able to deliver education in real time. No, I hear you. I hear you. It's it's interesting. I could see a world where there are students who have a fundamental love of the arts and is an artist by their own right. But they want to start their own studio or they want to parlay it into a business. The idea that they can get the technical features of art and then couple that with the basics of understanding finance, you know, sort of understanding accounting, understanding the basics of running that business. Absolutely. That makes for a powerful combination. And that goes with the same notion of what we were talking about earlier. If everything is business and business makes sense only when combined with some other options, then we are really opening the world up for our students and really fundamentally rethinking how higher education is delivered. I think Mason is poised to be the leader in this space. Well, you know, that brings up issues of accreditation and how we get it past the accreditors. So I'd be really, really interested in hearing your thoughts on that. But this is the kind of thinking that changes directions and it's the kind of thinking that we need. If I might, uh, you know, you bring up a really important point because we do need proper accreditation. That is important. So being proactive about it, what we've done is we've actually published a piece with AACSB, which is uh, the business school's prime accreditation body, uh, really laying out the case for why business education should be delivered in this multifunctional, multidisciplinary format. I'm happy to tell you that it's received very positive feedback from AACSB and from several of my fellow deans from around the country. Oh, that's good. That's good. Well, we're going to continue to follow that, and you all out there should continue to follow it as well, because that's real change. Speaking of which, you had a fireside chat. Alayla Jenkins, the acting secretary for the U.S. Navy, 
and I mind you, a Mason alum, in discussing the Navy's workforce, she said that she often tells her people, if you don't change, you don't grow. It's very important that everybody learns to work in different environments, how to work with different cultures, how to be more inclusive, how to work in a very diverse organization, and how to communicate and move forward. How does this align with your vision for the School of Business? And I couldn't agree more with Ms. Jenkins. I think she said it just right. This is really what is at the heart of education. When you put out an educated young person into the job market or into our economy, we have to make sure that education makes them flexible and not brittle. And I think over-engineering or over-focusing them into a particular aspect without having the flexibility of a, the knowledge of the discipline or flexibility of understanding of what the makeup of society is and how society really thrives with inclusivity and diversity and so on. It is important that is woven in not as a separate afterthought, but woven into the fabric of our various courses. So it becomes part and parcel of what they're learning. You don't teach it as a separate topic, but it becomes part of finance and accounting and marketing and management. And uh, it becomes the fabric of uh, or the backdrop of learning. So, Paula, you're out in the trenches every day. Would something like this be a useful change from your perspective in terms of what you see? Absolutely. I can't get enough MBAs. MBAs are the people who start businesses. And we offer and augment so many of the classes, the curriculum, which is very critical to being able to build business skills. And we are able to augment those with things that maybe wouldn't make sense as a college curriculum, but how to set up QuickBooks, for example, for the first time in your business. And basic strategic planning and some just quick hits where if students are interested and And by the way, most of the workshops, almost all the workshops we offer are no cost to uh, students, to faculty, to businesses in the community. We make them as available as we can, and there's a wide Mm -hmm. array so that they can pick what they need in order to move forward. It's very similar to what Ajay is saying about his approach to curriculum for students as well, is being able to give them the basics, meet them where they are, which I know Mason is great at. We do the same thing with entrepreneurs that we do with students. We meet them where, where they are, regardless of where their point A is, and we help them get to point B by the resources available. Another thing that we do is we take a no wrong door approach So there are a lot of resources available for entrepreneurs. We're trying to build on those resources, of course. But we work with our partners. We work with, for example, the Virginia Innovation Partnership Corporation, VIPC. We work with a lot of the incubators and the other universities around the state. And we make sure that depending on where an entrepreneur is based and what they need, they get connected to that resource no matter where they came from and where they're going to end up. Oh, that is really cool. So in the data that you highlighted, that we highlighted earlier, one of the things that struck me was the fact that we're touching so many women, the fact that we're touching so many people from underrepresented groups. Paula, you were part of the Mason's Anti-Racism and Inclusive Excellence Task Force. How do you see the vision of that program tying into what you were actually accomplishing with Mason Enterprise? So I have a bad joke that goes, when somebody asks me why so many women are getting help from us, I always say, well, women ask for directions and help. (laughs) 
<laughs> building a business. <laughs> but, um, but we're, you know, it, it shows that we're serving the community. And some of the things that we've done to make sure that we're serving the community is that we've expanded the language offerings that we have because we know that immigrants are great entrepreneurs and we want to make sure that we're serving them appropriately. We've brought in a minority business ombudsman to the team to help <coughs> us better integrate with communities. And we've made an effort as we hire counselors to make sure that they are from those communities as well. So our counselors are experienced business people that have backgrounds in business and we make sure that we keep the quality level high. And as we've added, we've even layered on this technical support program. So it's the ICAP mentor program. So if you are a tech company, no matter where you're located, you get an experienced tech entrepreneur who's providing you advice. If you need some extra expertise, you know, it's a team of 20 people where we do a handoff depending on what the company needs at that particular time and how they can move forward. We didn't set out to specifically help women and minority and veteran-owned businesses we simply served the community that was here. And by doing that and listening to what they needed and addressing that, those are the numbers that you see today. So, Ajay, how does the School of Business address entrepreneurship? You have some exciting programs there in the space. Can you talk a little bit about them? Sure. Uh, entrepreneurship is uh, you know, very, very central to the School of Business. But as you know, most universities, most business schools in this country all have a center for entrepreneurship in it. They do. The question always becomes, so entrepreneurship for what? And what are you servicing over here? So after arriving here at Mason, one of the things I've been looking at closely is what is the makeup of the environment that we are operating in? And uh, we've come upon three uh, streams, if you will, to really address with entrepreneurship over here. So uh, at our Center for Innovation on Entrepreneurship, we are focusing on three separate populations, and collectively I would label them as uh, entrepreneurship for the underrepresented. So what are these three streams? Uh, one of the streams focuses on the inner city, where now we are collaborating with folks in Alexandria to look at issues that the inner city folks where you're uh, looking at people who are training to be, say, carpenters or welders or so on. That's a wonderful uh, vocational uh, training that they can have, but can they now own businesses in carpentry and welding and can they start? What does it take them to go from being a welder to owning a welding business? So that was one orientation. The second stream we are focused on is around the refugee and immigrant population. And that is a very interesting set of folks that hmm. come with a tremendous set of talents with them, but they require a very different kind of training for entrepreneurship than folks who are focused, uh, are looking at from a vocational perspective, from a vocational to a business, or having someone who comes in with a refugee or an immigrant background who could be very well-placed in their own environment but got displaced for a variety of reasons. Right. And now how do you train them to be a working entrepreneur in our society? And the third segment is entrepreneurship in rural Virginia. So all three of them, I'm happy to uh, share with you that all three of them are getting tremendous traction with folks, entrepreneurs in this area nice. who are taking ownership of it and helping us craft both what the content is, 
of these programs as well as connecting us with the right set of population decision makers and policy makers who would help us craft the message correctly that would really benefit the entrepreneurs and place us as a very distinct university that reacts to the requirements of society in in our setting through an entrepreneurship lens. You mentioned something there that tweaked my interest a little bit. You talked about rural business. If I were to say that there is one thing that, in my opinion, is uniquely American, what is that one thing that we have that encapsulates or embodies the American spirit, probably more so than any other? It'll be entrepreneurship, Mm -hmm. right? Even people from other countries, they come here with the idea that I can come here and start my own business. It could be a shoe shine business. It could be a big tech company, right? But I can come here and start a business and I got a fair shot at making it be successful, exactly. right? And so reaching out to these rural communities and having programs there make a lot of sense. In addition to that, our data reports that about 68% of Mason business alumni live within 50 miles of university. And 50 miles of university might be a little rural, but not that much, right? Sure. sure. So we are pretty much touching both groups. Yep. Yep. Right? Yeah. We're touching one group with our alum. We're touching other groups with our programs. I see that as a significant impact on society. Right. We cover every county in Virginia. So we provide support to entrepreneurs in every county. It's counseling and training. And, you know, there are a lot of commonalities among businesses with the challenges that they have, regardless of where they're located. So 95% of entrepreneurs who come to us say, all I need is money and I can get started. In reality, 95% of them need some type of help before they ask for the money so that they do it the right way and they have all other things in order. And I think one of the biggest challenges that any entrepreneur has is, where do I start? There's so much out there, where do I start? And one of our offices is the best way to do that. This is a perfect segue into this next segment, which is it's going to be almost like rapid fire. I'm going to throw out these small topics, and then I want you all just to respond, whatever comes to mind. Bring it. Okay, you ready <laughs> to hit it? All right. You highlighted something. I want to challenge you on it here in a second. Mm-hmm. But I'm going to throw out the topic as a lead-in segue. You, you, you'll see what I'm saying here in a minute. What is the number one challenge for starting a small business? Number one challenge. Where to start? And I'd say the answer to that would be go to your small business development center. They know all the resources. Again, no wrong door approach. They'll get you to where you need to be. Okay. I would say understand basic business and also understand that cash is king or queen when it comes to entrepreneurship. Now, people, I would ask a lot of folk, and this this is my challenge, a lot of folk would say money. Is that really true? Is money the number one challenge for for starting a small business? It is a big challenge. Capital is always a challenge. And we work hard to make sure that we help people with access to capital. Some of our big numbers that grew in the last year in terms of our economic impact was connecting companies to venture capital and helping them get ready to ask for venture capital. The biggest one was government contracting. There's a lot of government funding on the street, and we are working really hard to make sure that small businesses get a cut of that and that they're successful. We have a terrific team at our procurement technical assistance center now called apex they do a wonderful job at that i think we're probably the best in the country at that outstanding outstanding rapid fire number two social media is it important for small business if so how important 
Oh, I love this topic so much. So when I started counseling small businesses, you know, my expertise was marketing. So I would help them put together their marketing budgets. And I'm old enough where I remember a time when there wasn't social media. And putting together a marketing budget on a shoestring was always a challenge. Social media has changed the game in that way. And that as a startup, it's a set of tools that's available to you at no cost. That alone is just an amazing opportunity. But businesses need work. They need help with that. They need to understand the ins and outs of social media, how to do it properly, what to not do, what are all the resources available, how do they use the tools. And I think that we're going to continue to see game-changing work in social media, and especially chat GPT is a really hot topic right now with good reason. And I think it's going to change the face of marketing as well. Some statistics. Over 80 or 85 percent of all new businesses, small businesses, have some version of their business online and do a large portion of their business operations in terms of revenue generating operations online. So is digital media and uh, is uh, social media important for them? You bet. You know, it's hugely important. The other part of it is over 90% of them start off with some version of an online notion of an online presence and grow from that. That's just the nature of the times we are in. So right. I think no question about it. Hugely right. important. You can set up a website and you can use Wix or any other tool exactly. for next to nothing. So you highlighted something which actually connected to my next rapid fire question. Artificial intelligence, ChatGPT, and many of these other natural language protocols that are being introduced at a rapid succession, will they have an impact on small business? Will they change small business radically? Yes. One of my staff members sent me a letter that was written through ChatGPT. And then we spent about a half an hour editing a five-paragraph letter. So it's not there yet, but it's going to learn quickly, just in the same way that it launched. I think in a year and in two years, it's going to be a different world. And the information that's at your fingertips, being able to make it stand out from kind of the repetition that we're going to start seeing from data is going to be the creativity in how to use it and how to manage it is going to be a whole other skill set. I would agree, absolutely. I think it impacts on both sides of the equation. Chat GPT or AI tools and techniques that are coming into vogue right now, they certainly change the way how people construct documents, do uh, you know letters, memos, business plans, what have you. That's absolutely true. But increasingly, they're also going to become tools and offerings in the future. So they become not just a way for us to communicate out, but building them into products that are going to come out in the future. I hear so, that. So I think uh, for small businesses, it's uh, both an opportunity and a threat on both sides of it. And I think it's an interesting time. Okay. Well, let's flip it to the other side of that. Let's say you're running away from all of this artificial intelligence. And what about human intelligence? What about good old-fashioned relationship building? How important will that be in the future for small business? I can't think of a single business where relationships aren't important. And the form that that takes is maybe going to shift a little bit, but it's still going to come down to some type of human connection. But I did hear my favorite saying on ChatGPT is, you won't lose your job to it, but you might lose your job to somebody who's using it as a tool. <laughs> <laughs> Real deep. That sounds like an answer that ChatGPT will give. <laughs> 
I couldn't agree more. Absolutely. Anything in terms of uh, what it's going to do to us or uh, for us, I think if we go with the tagline always, the everything is business, which I say ad nauseum, along with it, the corollary is business is personal. Business mm-hmm. is eventually all business is about a transaction that happens between two entities and there are two human beings at both ends of the transaction. You can look at the whole uh, value chain of that transaction and that can certainly be augmented with technology. But eventually it's about relationships. So Nice, nice. Ajay, you highlighted something early and I want you both to, in this rapid fire segment, to kind of address it. You talked about the number of businesses that are owned by a single person. Can these micro-businesses affect global change? Can those businesses have an impact globally? And if you know of any examples, highlight them. Yes. A quick answer would be yes, absolutely. You know, what, one of the things that COVID made obvious to all of us is we live in a global world and with global interactions and global uh, supply chains that dominate us in every sense of the word and in every aspect of our world. Just about every product we deal with today has some aspect of global touching it. So none of it is 100% anywhere uh, singularly owned. So who are the contributors to this? Well, if over 90% of businesses are small business, they are the big contributors. And uh, so them succeeding and them leading the way and them in some ways altering the if you will, the architecture of business Mm -hmm. over there is absolutely central. We're a research university, and research universities, the reason that faculty do research is to improve lives. They invent things all the time, and those become small businesses if they make it all the way through, and then those small businesses become larger businesses, and just by design, they're set out to solve the world's most challenging problems. And a few years ago, I found the same thing that Ajay had just quoted regarding survival rate, is that more than half of small businesses failed. But when I looked at the five-year survival rate of a company coming out of a university, it had a 75% five-year survival rate. And there are a lot of reasons for that. One is it's built on solid science. It's gone through the tech transfer office, and it's been worked over in terms of, is it competitive? Does it have something that's protectable in terms of intellectual property? Are there investors interested in all the questions that we ask in order to help a technology make it to a market? This is the reason that we do this. Scientists want to have societal impact for the research they do. So absolutely, small businesses have an impact. If I could just add, you know, couldn't agree more with you, Paula. Just perfect. And it sort of wraps back to where you started with uh, originally. What is the requirement for us to be interdisciplinary, cross-disciplinary, and so on? Mm -hmm. Our researchers do the best research in science and technology. Our business researchers do great research in business. And the reason why businesses emanating out of universities succeed is because you have this richness of thought, process, and interactions that lead the way for these businesses to get set up. So I think this is one of the big value adds of universities that are, is typically understated. Talk to me a little bit about our region. It's a very crowded academic region. There are at least 18 universities, at least within 30 miles of George Mason University right now, at least 18. Talk to me about the region, its needs for small business, for entrepreneurship, and how the universities collectively can play a part in helping to meet some of the challenges uh, related to the questions that I just highlighted to you. 
So in the work that we do, we have formal partnerships and MOUs with a lot of the universities that are in the region. I don't see having a bunch of universities in this particular region, at least for the work that I do, is, is not a bad thing. It creates critical mass. Critical mass equals talent. Critical mass equals startups and research. And critical mass equals a draw to capital to the area. So I like that there are a lot of universities here. I like the role that Mason plays, and it is unique. We're not an also-ran. We are the largest footprint, and it is fun for me to go around and create partnerships with these other universities and learn about what problems they're solving, what research they're working on, what their students are learning, and how do we collaborate on those. And we're funded to do so. We're incentivized to do so. So for me, it's not a challenge. It's an opportunity. I would add to that in just saying that uh, we are living in an environment where uh, we are rich with all these universities around, so we should look at both competing and collaborating at the same time. So we don't all have to be good at everything at the same time. That's right. There's a term that I have for that. It's called coopetition. Correct. Absolutely. Figure out when you're going to cooperate and you figure out when you're going to compete. But to your point, absolutely. And so what we need to do is similar things to what Paula is saying. You know, use this as a power of this region. The fact that we have all these universities, the fact that we can collaborate. I can tell you I'm in active conversations with business deans around the region over here, certainly in the DMV area. Mm-hmm. They're all very positively disposed to collaborating with us. And they see our strengths, we see their strengths. And there's no reason for us to be going head-to-head in areas where uh, there may not be our strength. We may be able to collaborate and uh, draw on their strengths, and they from us. Right, and right. so that, that is the game plan. I said one plus one can equal three sometimes. Outstanding. Outstanding. You know, it's really, really clear to me that Mason is actually open for business. Mm-hmm. And I want to thank both of you for taking the opportunity to be here today and for giving us your feedback. Any parting words? I think we should take this show on the road. I think we are ready to go. It certainly is Mason's time. I love it. I'd like to thank my guests, Paula Sorrell, Associate Vice President at Mason for Innovation and Economic Development, and Dean Ajay Vense, Dean of the School of Business. I am Mason President Gregory Washington saying until next time, stay safe, Mason Nation. If you like what you heard on this podcast, go to podcast.gmu.edu for more of Gregory Washington's conversations with the thought leaders, experts, and educators who take on the grand challenges facing our students, graduates, and higher education. That's podcast.gmu.edu.